Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. What I'd like to do is answer various questions that people have had about various topics in the past. And this is based on a book I was given uh, decades ago by the old Worldwide Church of God, saying these are subjects you can preach about, etc. And so this consists essentially of various letters that the old Worldwide Church of God responded to inquiries people asked them. Now I'm going to talk about our words, uh, Europe, mercy killings, uh, Germany prophecy, a bunch of other stuff. And basically I've been going through this particular uh, binder and we don't just give the same explanations that the old Worldwide Church of God gave for a couple of different reasons. One, sometimes uh, there were some changes from the new administration that we didn't agree with. And two, there's been some other historical developments since these came out uh, that we want to go over. So I'm going to start with the first one. And the first one is, is it okay to use slang expressions such as gosh and gee? And so here's what the old Worldwide Church of God said. Such words are known as euphemisms, which according to Random House Dictionary, a euphemism is a substitution of a mild, indirect, or vague expression for one thought to be offensively harsh or blunt. And it says, common expressions such as gosh and gee are used as substitutes for the name of God the Father and Jesus Christ. They're thinly disguised expressions of strong profanity and are actually blasphemous. In Ephesians 4.29 it says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. This certainly applies to any careless speaking of slang expressions of euphemisms which are profane God's name. Now, one of the things that this didn't go over is what happens in more modern times. We have a booklet, uh, it's kind of a, it's actually more of a book, between a book and a booklet, I guess, uh, on the Ten Commandments. Now this book or booklet, or any other I might hold up, up are available free at the www.ccog.org website. You can go to the literature tab under books and booklets, and you can find them, click on them, and you can read them. They're there, we don't ask you for your email address, you can just go and do that. But anyway, What's different from then is probably now in modern times what we see is people vainly make statements such as oh my god and they're not referring to God or, uh, or uh, oh my gosh, uh, oh my goodness and these are also euphemistically inappropriate things such as using OMG on the internet. This should not be done. Uh, you know, many when they're upset scream uh, Jesus, get not in prayer, or do the same thing when they cry out words like Jesus. We're not supposed to euphemistically use God's name in vain. Uh, uh, by the way, we in the Continuing Church of God also don't say God bless you after someone sneezes, uh, not because we don't God to bless somebody, but that's actually based on unbiblical notion that an evil spirit can enter somebody once they sneeze. All right. So anyway, more on the Third Commandment can be found in our uh, free booklet on the Ten Commandments. We also have a sermon at the Continuing COG channel on the Third Commandment that you can watch as well. And next one. Thank you for your recent question concerning the common market in Europe. At present, the European community made up of 12 member nations. Well, that became the European Union with uh, 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 27 nations. And a lot of people have concerned about this. You know, will Europe actually unite? 
Well, Europe has gotten bigger, uh, and it's actually larger economically than the United States. Uh, it has more people than the United States. But people say, yeah, but the United States, people more or less speak the same language, basically speak the same language, and it's all united. It's why it's called the United States. And Europe is all broken up into zillions of pieces. Well, as far as Europe being broken into pieces, that's been expected and having poor unity. I'm flipping over in my Bible, New King James Version, to Daniel chapter 2. And I want to read uh, uh, something from an uh, interpretation of a dream that uh, uh, Daniel uh, gave uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And so let's start in verse uh, uh, 41, because this is a reference to what we're seeing forming in Europe right now. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere one to another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So, this is a prophecy about the end-time European power. You've got uh, ten toes. Uh, in Revelation chapter 13, we read about uh, uh, ten horns. But I want to go also to read about ten kings. Uh, and this goes to the book of Revelation chapter 17. Currently, when people see Europe, they don't see any possibility of them getting together very much. Some people do, but most don't. They think it's just... Uh, impossible. Uh, people, particularly in the United States, act like they believe the United States is going to rule uh, the world forever, but it's not going to be the case. Now, in Daniel, we talked about the ten toes. Now, let's go to Revelation 17, verse 12. Talk about the ten horns. Ten horns which you saw are ten kings who've received no kingdom as yet. Now, some people, including in Church of God groups, have misinterpreted this, thinking this means ten currently existing nations. No, they haven't received their kingdoms yet. So this is talking about some type of a reorganization in Europe. Probably some kind of a regional uh, a grouping, and possibly you know, like grouping a bunch of small nations together like Belgium, Luxembourg, and uh, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, it was actually kind of the beginning of the common market, if you will. It says, anyway, they're going to receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So these are not currently ten, currently existing nations. Now, uh, it's possible that perhaps Germany itself would be one of the kings or whatever. But again, this is talking about some type of reorganization that's going to hit this divided Europe. And what's, what's going to happen? Verse 13, despite the lack of unity we read about in Daniel chapter 2, it says, They are of one mind. So they are united in one sense. And they will give their power and authority to the beast. So we've got coming up uh, a reorganization that's going to hit Europe. A reorganization that uh, will allow the beast power to, 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 to rise up. And again, uh, when this was put out by the old uh, World Church God, there was no European Union and it wasn't as big. Now here's the next one. And by the way, from this particular letter series, this is letter 184. The previous two I went over, 183 and 184. This is 185 I'm going to read now. Asking 
Thank you for your recent question concerning the subject of mercy killing. There's been a lot of controversy about this. Euthanasia, as it's called in medical circles, is defined, according to Van Nostrum's Scientific Encyclopedia, as easier painless death brought on to end in lingering, hopeless, painful disease. Few, it seems, look to the Bible to see what God says. When we do, you'll see that from the beginning, God intended the human beings to live out a productive and fulfilling life in preparation for eternal life with Him in His kingdom. We also find that uh, giving and taking of life is a prerogative that belongs only to God, the giver. You see that in Psalm 36.9 and John 6.35. God's Word shows that the weak are supposed to be cared for and not murdered. And it says, see also, First Thessalonians 5.14. So let's go to First Thessalonians 5.14. I didn't mark it, but we should do that. Just read that. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn you those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient to all. Okay, so instead of uh, telling the uh, faint-hearted you ought to be killed, you're supposed to comfort them. Now, it also says, on the other hand, the idea that heroic measures must be taken to keep terminally ill person alive as long as possible is also not biblical. Because they can keep people alive forever on machines. We're not saying it's not okay to allow somebody to be kept alive that way, but we don't believe that you're required to do that. Uh, and this, this says there's no sense of prolonging a person's dying. Many righteous people in the Bible knew they were dying, got their affairs in order, gathered their fathers together and said goodbye, simply died. It's not wrong to ask God in His mercy to allow a suffering person to peacefully die. Now, in New Zealand, in October of 2020, they voted to legalize uh, euthanasia. About 65% voted uh, in favor of it. And, you know, we're seeing more and more of the wrong type of leadership in the world. You don't have to go there. We're going to read from Isaiah uh, chapter 3, verse 12. It says, O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the ways of your path. And I'm going to read Romans 1.32. talks about those who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. Now, perhaps I should mention the idea of physician-assisted suicide is also a violation of the Hippocratic Oath that medical doctors used to take. It also, by the way, prohibits abortion. And the Code of Ethics according to the American Medical Association is that you're not supposed to do this. Now, the old Worldwide Church of God said that uh, you know suicide was a crime, and it said, well, what about mercy killings? Subtle forms of murder include abortion, euthanasia, and they're they're wrong. And we've told people about this, and we're supposed to tell people when they do things that are wrong. You know, our Bible news prophecy videos tend to do that a lot. We have one on euthanasia once the uh, people in New Zealand voted in favor of it. And I quoted Isaiah 58, verse 1, which I'm going to quote now. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins. And euthanasia certainly is one of those, and we've been denouncing that as well. So those abortions, LGBTQ agenda, etc., 
Now, here's an interesting one, letter 186. People want to know if it's okay to begin a pregnancy today because of the frightening state of the world. And he talks about that Jesus warned about those who would have young children in that day. And it says in this letter, your answer, while the time may be approaching, that it'll be inadvisable to plan for more children, uh, the church has in no way urged people to forego this joy. Many brethren are still planning to start to increase their families. We simply encourage all members to consider the times which we're living. At some point in time, uh, there'll be a time to, to limit having children uh, because of what's going to happen. Well, I don't believe that's going to be the case until uh, Daniel 9, uh, the deal of Daniel 9, 26 and 27 is discussed. And we have this deal, and we'll have three and a half years. Uh, once we know this deal has been confirmed, we can tell people, because then people would have sufficient time, because Jesus... Well, let's, let's, let's go there and read this and look at Matthew. Go to Matthew 24. Now, starting in verse 15, it says, You see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So Jesus is uh, tying Daniel in with this. And that abomination is also mentioned in Daniel 9.27, which I alluded to a moment ago. It says, verse 19, Lo to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight be not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Um, so Jesus is tying in Daniel to this. Until the deal is confirmed in Daniel 9.27, uh, don't think we need to really worry about this. So let's presume for the sake of argument that uh, you're married and uh, you have a pregnancy. You're, you or your wife becomes pregnant. Uh, if you're a married man, of course, it'd be your wife. Um, like right today, and let's say the deal of Daniel 9.27 was confirmed today or tomorrow and you just learned about it. Well, you've got nine months to have the baby. And then if you nurse the baby for another a year and a half or so, uh, or even two years, that's two years and nine months, it's still three and a half years from the time we find out about the deal, or the deal is confirmed in Daniel 9.27. Now, we might not know it's confirmed for a few weeks or months afterwards, or even maybe as much as a year, but that would still be sufficient time for someone to uh, conceive, to uh, give birth, and to nurse for a, year, for a year or two or whatever, and be all done with that before it's time to flee. So we, like the old uh, Worldwide Church of God, do not believe that uh, if you're married, uh, you, this is, you should not be having children now. You can have children now if you can afford to take care of them. Uh, so that, hopefully that answers that with some more modern updates. Okay. Now here's one. Now the old, the changed Worldwide Church of God changed their uh, uh, answer for this. But anyway, about... The command about not seething or boiling a young goat in its mother's milk in Exodus 23:19. It's also written in Exodus 34:26 and Deuteronomy 14:21. Uh, they say that God doesn't want His people borrowing customs from the pagans to use to worship Him, Him, which you can read about in Deuteronomy 12:28 uh, to 32. And according to Peake's commentary. Some pagans practice a fertility rite which involved boiling a young goat in the milk of its mother 
and sprinkle the broth on their fields and gardens. They believed doing so was basically a magic charm that was ensured to increase the yield of their crops. And so this is something that God didn't want to have done. And this is something fairly easy to do these days. Um, not too many people raise goats. Uh, my family has from time to time. And we uh, uh, butchered uh, goats and consumed them, but we didn't uh, boil them in their mother's milk. Uh, even though we, do, we have uh, milk goats over the years quite a bit. All right, now the next one has to do with the book of Ezekiel. And maybe we should go to Ezekiel chapter 1, because this is kind of an unusual book, if you will. At least it starts off in a way that, I, that many of us think is kind of unusual. And so anyway, the question has to do with the first and the tenth chapters of the book of Ezekiel. And it starts out talking about Ezekiel in verse 1 of Ezekiel 1. Now, it came to pass in the 30th uh, year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I, that's Ezekiel, was among the captives, children of Israel were captives, by the river Kibar, that the heaven was open, and I saw visions of God. So he was given visions of God. And in verse 4, says, I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire, engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of the midst, like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it, likeness of four living creatures. Now this is actually a vision of the throne of God, but I want to read something about these creatures first. We'll talk about that a little bit. And this was the appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each had four faces and had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's feet. They were sprinkled alike with the burnished bronze. The hands of the man were in their hands with the wing and the four sides. And they had four faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. They didn't turn when they went. They went straight forward. And the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each four had the face of a lion on the right side, ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle on, the, on them. Now, understand that these were created prior to lions and humans and uh, angels, I mean, uh, eagles. So, uh, if you want to know what uh, these type of angelic beings look like, you're giving us uh, humans and how some angels uh, were. And then we go back to uh, what uh, Worldwide has on here. It says, go down to verse 22. The likeness of the firmament above the living creatures was the color of the awesome crystal stretched out over uh, the wings of their heads and said this was uh, uh, transparent. Kind of reminds me of the sea of glass that we read about in the New Testament. And let's read, uh, they wanted to said, Ezekiel saw God seated in the throne and Let's go to verse 26. And above the firmament, above, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne in appearance, like a sapphire stone. And the likeness of that throne was a likeness of the appearance of a man high above it. And from the appearance of his waist upwards, I saw it were the color of amber, the appearance of fire all within it. And from the appearance of his waist downward, I saw the appearance of fire all around, like the appearance of a rainbow, the cloud on the 
on a rainy day, its appearance of the brightness of all around it, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So this is a worldwide sense of the vision of the cherubim. There's uh, wheels under it, and it transports God's throne. Uh, the Bible shows elsewhere that God doesn't remain in his heaven, but comes down to earth. Of course, God is everywhere, and God inhabits eternity, according to Scripture. But uh, he has a throne, and that's what this is discussing. And I want to go some more into uh, of God uh, inhabiting eternity in another message at some point in time. But yes, he has a massive, glorious throne. Ezekiel saw it, and it sounds like it was mind-boggling what he really saw. The next one is uh, letter 189. It's got to do with gambling. He asked about participating in games of chance. Are all forms of gambling or games of chance sin? The Bible uh, defines sin as the transgression of God's law. First uh, John 3, 4, Old King James. One of these commandments is that we're not supposed to covet. Exodus 20, verse 17. Any activity based upon coveting is sin. Jesus also explained that the second of the greatest commandments were to love our neighbors ourselves in Matthew 22, 39. You can't be, uh, you're not really doing that, you're competing in a coveting attitude to get something somebody else owns. We shouldn't want to increase our wealth or our possessions by taking from others. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't get paid for what we do or if we sell something. But we don't want the attitude of greed and it's uh, wrong regardless of uh, the value of a wager. Uh, uh, God says it's hard for the covetous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And First Timothy uh, 1, excuse me, First Timothy 6 verses 9 to 10 warns about falling in the trap of lusting after riches. Anyway, the old Worldwide Church of God wrote, Cards, dice, games of chance, and the like are not inherently wrong. God's church has long understood it's not the thing that's wrong, but the wrong use is the thing that results in sin. For example, a card game or bingo game played for fun is not wrong, even if poker chips, peanuts, or other items are used. Now, we were somewhere recently, uh, they had free bingo cards. We didn't win anything, but it was, it was, it was fun to play. Somebody else won, uh, I guess, a pass to a show or something. In such cases, coveting is not involved. That was fun. Crap, we hoped we'd win, but it was not like, oh, I want to take from somebody else. <laughs> okay. All right. It's also not our intent to try to spell out or address every possible kind of activity that would involve putting something of value, chance of winning for reward. And I would also comment that, you know, some people have serious problems with gambling, shouldn't ever have anything to do with it. Uh, you know, God holds responsible for what we do, uh, and gambling uh, tends to make one justify in their own mind about getting. Uh, it's not supposed to be uh, encouraged. But again, as I said, uh, we recently were somewhere, we had some free bingo card, and we did it. Again, we don't think that was wrong, and that's consistent with what the old Worldwide Church of God taught. What about bankruptcy? The Bible makes it clear in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15 that someone can become poor and unable to cope with his financial situation and not have to pay. They were supposed to lend them. But it also, worldwide, was properly warning that we need to be careful about somebody's needs versus somebody's wants. 
Uh, and they had something called a year of release. Uh, people should pay their debt. The Bible says it, uh, uh, it's wrong to, that the, the righteous borrow and they pay back again, but the wicked uh, don't. Uh, it doesn't mean there can't be a place for bankruptcy, and the uh, again, the Old Testament allows for that. Christians are supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and all His righteousness, it says in Matthew 6.33, and not unduly take away from others. Not just game the system like, oh, I'm allowed to go bankrupt legally, so this is right. Um, so you need to be careful about that. Now here's uh, one of the letters that the old Worldwide Church of God changed the answer, so I'm not excuse me, the changed Worldwide Church of God uh, under the Koch administration. And that had to do with the question about gelatin products. And part of their answer is correct. It says, we understand from the manufacturer of gelatin desserts, including makers of Jello and Royal, they get their gelatin from clean and unclean animals. It's extracted from the skins of uh, beef, calf, and pork. Uh, hence, they should be avoided. Now, to justify this, the changed worldwide Church of God said that they should be able to eat it because you can get an Orthodox rabbi to certify gelatin as kosher. Uh-huh. Well, first of all, an Orthodox rabbi is somebody who has not accepted Jesus as Messiah, has already discounted scriptures, and the fact that uh, they can be persuaded to do that is irrelevant. It doesn't change scripture. Uh, Jesus said scripture cannot be broken. And now the letter does say what we eat can affect our health. And that, uh, uh, so no, people should not be eating the type of gelatin. Now there are some societies where they do use uh, either uh, beef gelatin or stuff from seaweed as kind of a gelatin type thing. And that itself would be fine. Uh, the only time we tend to run into gelatin as a problem are in our family, since we don't eat jello, brand jello, or Royal or some of those other kinds of things would be some brands of uh, uh, yogurt. Uh, sometimes they, they put gelatin in and so that's the only time we tend to run into it. So we'll read the labels and not consume that. Okay. Now, this next one has to do with uh, Genesis 49.10. The expression, until Shiloh comes. Uh, until modern times, the majority of uh, both uh, Protestant and Jewish scholars translate this passage in the same way applied to the Messiah. Traditional understanding is that Shiloh comes from the root word of peace. With this in mind, the passage could be phrased to read, until the man of peace comes. And so that's their explanation here. And then here's one about... Uh, Genesis 30, 37 to 43. Why don't we go to Genesis 30 for this? Yes, my Bible makes lots of noise when I change pages, which is one of the reasons why for most of the sermons I have the scriptures already written out. So I don't have to flip to them all. But I also have a Bible with me in case I decide, oh, I should cover that scripture that wasn't in my notes. Anyway, uh, in verse 36, we see that uh, uh, Jacob and Laban were about three days apart. Jacob took some rods of green poplar and almond chestnut trees, put white strips on them, exposed the white which was in the rods. He 
peeled them, he put them in the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where they came to drink, so that they could conceive while they were there. They conceived before the rods, and they brought forth more speckled and streaked, spotted ones. He separated the lambs and flocks and uh, kept it away from uh, Laban's. Anyway, basically what he was doing was uh, selective breeding. He, in this letter says, apparently he built uh, pens or corrals around them. Instead of driving the animals together, he just waited till they came to drink and penned them in. And uh, he separated the weaker males from the breeding flock, the strong ones to do stronger offspring. And uh, selective breeding is something that uh, has been done throughout history, and it's one of the reasons why our food production tends to be higher these days. Now, this next topic. Thank you for your question about the identity of Germany in Bible prophecy. Now, we did do a sermon about this once, uh, but I'd like to uh, uh, go through more details again, because it's been a while since we've uh, gone through this. And there's been a lot of concerns about uh, Germany and its identity. Um, where do the German people come from? Uh, let me read uh, something from the Bible to start off with. And this will be from Genesis chapter 10. You might want to go there. I'm going to read a few verses. The position of the old worldwide Church of God is that uh, the Germans are descended from the, Assyri from the ancient Assyrians. And so there's no point in reading their letter on that. I'll go through uh, the details because they have very few references, and I have those references in the details I'm going to go through here. Anyway, Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we see that one of the sons of Shem, who's a grandson of Noah, was named Aser, Asher, or Asher, depending on how you want to pronounce, spell it. Now, this is genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were born to them after the flood. Now let's go down to verse 21. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the brother of Japheth the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, there's lots of people who are called Assyrians. The old area of Assyria is first listed in Scripture in Genesis 2, verse 14. And apparently that was near where Eden was. So Genesis chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 2. Uh, let's start with uh, verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon, so one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, the one that goes around the land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It's the one that goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, the first century Jewish historian Josephus tied Asher uh, with Assyria as did the uh, uh, late 4th, early 5th century uh, Catholic doctor and Saint uh, Augustine. So, let me read uh, first from uh, Josephus. Shem, 
The third son of Noah had five sons who inhabited the land that began at the Euphrates and reached the Indian Ocean. Elam left behind him the Elamites, the ancestors of the Persians. Asher lived in Nineveh and named his descendants Assyrians, who became the most fortunate nation beyond others. So it became the most fortunate nation, became a very powerful nation. And Augustine wrote, Asser, the father of the Assyrian, of these nations, the names have partly survived, so that at this day we can see from they've sprung, as the Assyrians from Asher. So we're tying the Assyrians with Asher, Asher and with Shem. So we see for a long time that this, that connection's been there. Now some Assyrian kings were named a version of uh, Asher, according to the Encyclopedia Americana. And there's a report from the BBC uh, came out about seven years, just over seven years ago. I'd like to read something about the modern ancestors of Germany. A study of remains from Central Europe suggests the foundations of the modern gene pool were laid down between 4000 and 2000 BC in Neolithic times. A wave of migration by Near Eastern farmers some 6,000 years ago. But the extent by which present-day people are descended from the indigenous hunters and various newcomers that arrived in the Neolithic has been a matter of some debate. Haplogroup H dominates the mtDNA variation in Europe. Today, more than 40% of Europeans belong to this genetic clan, with frequencies much higher in the west, the continent, the east. The team selected 39 human remains from the Metibolus Sol region of Germany, all of which belong to the H clan. The remains were investigated there spanned 3,500 years of European prehistory. Only about 19% of the early Neolithic remains from Central Europe belonged to this clan. But from the middle Neolithic period onwards, DNA patterns most closely resemble those of people living in the area today, pointing to major and unrecognized population upheaval. We've established genetic foundation for modern Europe were only established in the mid-Neolithic uh, period, and this marks this genetic transition about 4,000 years ago. So we've got people coming from the Near East into Europe, and that's consistent with Assyrian uh, migrations from that area. Now, one of the more famous early Assyrian kings was named Sargon. In the 18th century <clears throat> BC, an Assyrian king named Sargon II ascribed his success to a god named Asher. Now various records show that the Assyrians claimed to have ties to Asher, which therefore means, by the way, that they had ties to the Bible, or they knew about the biblical people. Okay. Now I want to go to Isaiah 36. One of, uh, well, Sargon, the second son, was called Sennacherib, and he invaded uh, the fortified cities of Judah. And we can see that in Isaiah 36, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, 
came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. He stood at the aqueduct from the upper pool and on the highway of the fuller's field. Now I'd like to read something from Smith's Bible Dictionary. This is from a Protestant source. Assyria Asher. The civilization of the Assyrians was derived originally from the Babylonians. They were a Shemitic race, came from Shem, originally residents of Babylonia, and thus acquainted with Babylonian inventions and discoveries. But they were still, in the most important points, barbarians. And by the way, the Romans called the Germans barbarians. Their government was rude and artificial, their religion coarse and sensual, and their conduct in war was cruel. Now, as it turns out, Ishtar was a famous, or Ishtar was a famous goddess, favorite goddess of the Assyrian kings, who styled her as their lady, and sometimes coupled her with Asher, the great lord, in their invocations. Ishtar had a, a very old temple in Asher. Now, Ishtar was a goddess of fertility, also had ties with the ancient Babylonian mystery religion in Nimrod. She was also called Bel um, Beltis or, or Belit. She was the wife of Bel Nimrod. She was called the queen of fertility and known as the great uh, mother. And uh, Bel or Bel Nimrod, according to the testimony of the Syrian monuments, was worshipped extensively in Assyria as well as in Babylon. And so I want to go to Genesis 10 again, this time go to verse 8. In this letter from the Worldwide Church God, they didn't mention any scriptures, and I'd rather do it, so I'll go to a paper we have. By the way, we have a paper at the cogwriter.com website about Germany and scripture and history. Uh, that uh, My notes for, for this particular part of this message are here. Anyway, Genesis 10, starting in verse 8. Cush begat Nimrod, and he became a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, uh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, the principal city. Nimrod, probably around 2300 B.C., built Nineveh in the land of the Assyrians. And he had uh, religious and military influence on them. And after his death, he was deified as Bel-Nimrod. Now, Kala and Nineveh were both later capitals of the uh, Assyrian Empire. Around the 8th century B.C., uh, God sent Noah to the people of Nineveh. And at that time, it was the capital of that empire, and one of the major cities in the world. While there, uh, Jonah preached repentance, and people did repent uh, there for a time. Now, interestingly, well, what about Germany? In 700 BCE, BC before the Common Era, Germany was practically uninhabited. And the Assyrians themselves moved and were in different places. And now I'm going to read something about the Assyrians around 530 B.C. Skylax of Karyanda names the coast of the Black Sea from the Calabians to 
Armini, westward to the promontory of Sirius, Assyria. Strabo states that these Syrians, who extended from Taurus northwards as far as Pontus, were named Leuco-Syrians, that is, white Syrians. Places like Pontus were in Asia Minor. And according to National Geographic study on this DNA, it says the region of today, Germany, saw four stages of migration and settlement. The highlighted by marked shifts in genetic uh, uh, composition. And that's true. And because the Assyrians finally moved up there. Now, Tacitus was a late 1st century, early 2nd century historian. And he knew that the Germans, by this time, claimed that they had come from Asia Minor. So when Tacitus informs us that the first act of a German upon rising was washing, it will be conceded this habit was not acquired in a cold climate of Germany, but must be of Eastern origin. I'm reading from a reference here called the Annals and Antiquities of Rajasthan. As for the loose flowing robe, the long braided hair, the tying the knot on the top of the head, Tacitus knew their German claim of Asiatic origin when he asked, who would leave the softer abodes of Asia for Germany where nature yields nothing but deformity? And it's been reported that type of uh, hairstyle that talked about was similar to the Assyrian hairstyle. Now, apparently the Syrians were considered to be of similar ethnicity to the Germans by some Arabs, by the way. It says, medieval Arab authors say that the Assyrians are the, s the same source as the Germans. Now, why am I telling you some of this historical stuff? Because people have claimed that the position of the old worldwide church of God old radio church of God, and currently the continuing church of God. This is just a modern church of God invention about the identity of Germany and prophecy. And why am I going through a lot of details? Because a lot of people say, oh, there's just no proof. And you go to the mainstream, the mainstream doesn't think, by the way, that the Assyrians became Germans. Uh, they're totally confused about the Assyrians. Now, there are some Assyrians in different spots, including people who call themselves Assyrian, but many did go into Germany. Now here's something that says, Barhebrius, a, a Syria bishop who lived in the 12th century, wrote, the Germanica are the people of in Mosul, Nineveh, who came from Persia. Arab tradition have the Germanica as Assyrians. Now history does show, by the way, the Assyrians conquered uh, Persia. And hence, uh, the comments from that bishop are consistent with that old your Arab belief. Now, some Assyrians had uh, long, dark, having uh, black hair, but some of them didn't. And here's a report from Sir William Smith of the Northern Germans. They were a branch of the great Indo-Germanic race, along with the Celts, migrated into Europe from the Caucasus. In the countries around the Black and Caspian Seas, at a period long anterior or before historical records, they are described as people of high stature, great bodily strength, with fair complexions, blue eyes, a yellow or red hair. So we've got some with darker hair and some with uh, lighter colored uh, hair. 
Now, it might be interesting to note that Germany is called Alemania in Catalan, Deutschland in Dutch, Alemagna in French, Nemeco in Czech, Sax Saxoma in Estonian, and there's a bunch of other terms. Uh, I don't want to say all of them, but Aleman, another one of them. And in fact, there's many words that describe the Germans in different languages because they had different peoples who, who, who came together there. And it appears that the group, the people, the Bible calls Hittites, were also in the area of Central Europe and uh, Northern Germany. Now, because of certain language and DNA connections, they also might be part of the uh, the Germans. Many were considered, quote, white Nordic types. And one of their provinces was actually named Asura, and the Assyrians under Sargon II apparently absorbed many into their empire. So I'd like to uh, read some other sources here. It says, on the original Assyria, this is from the Kamut's Dictionary of the Holy Bible from 1830. So again, this is not from a Church of God source. On the original Assyria, we proceed to consider the character of another country, notice his marking, by the Hebrews and the Chaldeans, either as Sir, Shur, or Tyre. The compound word may be Isuria, Isuria, which is here rendered Assyria. Men prayed to, uh, now this is from another old writing, uh, men prayed to Tyre, in some place called Tiwaz, associated with the Roman god Mars. Uh, Tyre, this is T-Y-R, was the original god of war. And Tiwaz was related to the Roman god uh, Jupiter, Greek god Zeus, And I'd like to uh, read uh, Ezekiel 23. If you go through history, you'll see some ties between the uh, Assyrians, the Chaldeans, and the Babylonians. And so let's go to Ezekiel 23 to verify this also, verse, starting verse 23. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, Pekad, Shoah, Koah, all the Assyrians with them, all their desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains, men of renown, all them riding in horses, their chariots, their war horses, shall array against you, buckler and shield all around. So we see a confederation of Babylonians, Chaldeans, and Assyrians. Now that's consistent with prophecies such as those in Revelation 17, 12-13 that I read earlier. And the Bible talks about a time when a leader with Assyrian ties in Isaiah 10 rise up and destroy not a few nations. Now, this leader is also called the King of the North in Daniel chapter 11. And he's going to destroy uh, many. Well, what about the, this connection to Tyre and Ishtar and all this kind of stuff? Well, if you go into Daniel chapter 11, and let's go there. I wasn't going to go there, but let's go to Daniel chapter 11, starting verse 38. Says, this is talking about the king of the north, Daniel 11, verse 38. But in their place, he'll honor a god of fortresses. The gods his fathers didn't do. He'll act against the strongest fortress of the foreign god. 
time of the end, the king of the south will attack him, will come against him to the whirlwind, etc. Now, you see that a god of fortresses is mentioned, the god this doesn't know. God of fortresses seems to be related to a god that the Assyrians used to worship called uh, Tyre, uh, as well as Ishtar, and uh, one called Allah. And the fact is there's going to be some kind of a new god in this empire. Uh, there will be some type of connection to uh, a Babylonian god because we see about the fact that in the New Testament we read about mystery Babylon the Great. Now while in English-speaking lands we call this place Germany, the Germans themselves call themselves uh, Deutschland. Uh, some claim the word Germany comes from a word that means brother. Uh, another explanation is made up of the word from Latin Germanus, which means war gang or man of war. And I want to read something from uh, the old uh, Radio Church of God. It says, Ancient Assyria was the greatest war-making power in all history. His soldiers were uh, drilled to be hard-fighting war men. Assyria, when the Assyrians invaded Europe, the Romans called them Germans, meaning men of war. And that's how the Assyrians became known as Germans. But that's not the only reason. It says in Genesis 14, there was an invasion, four kings of Mesopotamia, Asia Minor. Josephus said the Assyrians had come to have dominion over Asia. Assyrians made war among them. Canaanites and the dividing army into four parts fought against them. And every part had its own commander. Then the army of the Assyrians came upon them, and under their commanders, uh, they won. These men were Assyrian generals. They commanded an Assyrian army divided into four parts. The Assyrians were making war, conquering, and plundering other people. And the names of these were not Hebrew. They were all forms of uh, sources. The name of one of these commanders was Title. It's an Indo-Germanic name. It's not Semitic. You have evidence before the days of Abraham, the Assyrians were speaking more than one language. And one was Indo-Germanic tongue. This goes back to King Tidal. And he talks about the Hattai or the Hessians uh, also being them. It says the ancient Chattai were Assyrian or German. And they had settled in Asia Minor. And they went to... Uh, Western Europe, where uh, Germans are today. And it says, the Assyrians kings wrote to the tribes of Hattai, the ancestors of the Hessians, as Assyrians. The ancestors of Germans glorified their god of war and said that they called him Thor or Thur, where, where Thursday comes from. And I mentioned the term Tiwa, so it's also associated with all of this. And it said they spread out. Now, you know, under uh, Adolf Hitler, Germans claimed to be Aryans, which sounds a lot like Assyrians uh, to me. Now, the term Deutschland is kind of an interesting one. It's kind of hard to uh, tie down where it came from. But here's something that uh, I've got from some older sources. This is from the mythology of the Aryan nations. Zeus Pater of the former Dias Pitar, of the latter represented Jupiter of the Latins, and the Tuisco, Zio, Tyre, and Tiwa of the German nations. Here's from primitive 
history of the Ionians of 19, excuse me, 1874. Tyre, the German sun god, is made the same as Zeus. And here's something from 1878. One old German story held that Tiva or Tiwa was the father of man, and man's three sons were Ing, Isk, and Ur, the fathers of the chief Deutsch tribes. Same word is used of Zeus and Dios. So there is some connection between his uh, Diwas Pitar with this Tyre or Zeus and Deutsch. Uh, others have suggested the term Tuisco became the word uh, Deutsch and even with the term Assyria. Now, while that might sound strange to have a D word becomes a T word, when I've looked at my own last name, uh, which is Teal, it's actually a derivative of uh, of, um, of a word that begins with a, with a, with a D. Uh, Dietrich. Okay? Now, how you go from Dietrich to Teal, I, I don't know. But if, when I looked at the ancient derivations, so we have some connections between Ds and Ts in the German language. Uh, and I won't go through all the details on that. Um, the the, uh, the old Radio Church of God said, why do the Germans call themselves Deutsch? Uh, basically because they said the Assyrians called their land Ather or Asher. And it was shortened to from Ather to Tyre. And when they appeared in Germany, excuse me, when the Assyrians came to Germany, they claimed Tyre or Tuha, T-I-W, as their ancestor. But what's the word Deutsch have to do with Tu? The modern word Deutsch, as educated Germans know, is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word T-I-W. He calls himself Dutch. He's saying, when a German calls himself Deutsch, he's saying he's Tiwas, or Asher's son, an Assyrian. But most Germans don't consider that they're saying that uh, they're Assyrian, but uh, that's what he said this came from. And I found various uh, migrations when I looked look through this. So the, the German historian Pliny mentioned a tribe of the Assyriani among the Scythians north of the Black Sea, and that they came uh, further north. And I'd like to read something from the Roman Catholic Saint Jerome. And why do I keep going through all this detail? Because a lot of people have said this stuff is all nonsense. Assyria is not Germany. But if you look at the pieces of history and forget trying to listen to the politically correct or the academically, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to call them that. Uh, those who claim to teach, there's some answers says ancestors answers they just don't like to teach, so they go a different way and they get the blind leading the blind and they think that they're educated but they're educated in wrong things. Anyway. Here's some of what uh, Jerome wrote in his letter. Uh, this looks like 123. I had to translate the uh, Roman numerals in my head. Jerome wrote, He that lets is taken out of the way, and yet we don't realize the Antichrist is near. Yes, Antichrist is near. The whole country between the Alps and the Pyrenees, between the Rhine River and the ocean, laid base by hordes of Quadi, Vandals, Samardians, Alans, Jippids, Julius, Saxons, Burgundians, Alamanni, and, and typically uh, the 
let's say in Spanish and in Dutch, uh, Spanish and Portuguese, they're called the Germans are called Aleman. And alas, for the common wheel, even Pannonians, for Asher is also joined with them. The once noble city of Mabuntatum has been captured and destroyed. His church, many th thousands, have been massacred. The people of Vangium, after standing a long siege, have been extirpated. The powerful city of Reims the, and the Belgians in the skirts of the world have fallen to Germany, while the provinces of, of Lyon are, with the exception, produces of one universal scene of des desolation. But anyway, what he's saying here is that Germans were part of Asher. Now, he actually has misapplied Psalm 83 here, but the point is that he considered the Germanic people came from Asher. Then uh, doc the late Dr. Herman Hay uh, uh, wrote in 1962, did the Assyrians invade Europe? Yes, Jerome says so. He saw him as an eyewitness. And, uh, and 300 years before Jerome, Pliny the, uh, the Elder declared the uh, Assyrini to be there as well. And I mentioned that before. Now here's something from uh, 1920 from uh, S.C. Vistal. Said, Assyria is interesting on account of the close parallel between her methods and morals and those of modern Germany. In politics, Germany has been an imitator of Assyria. So we see that similarities between Assyria and Germany have been noted there, but also others have throughout history said this. Some others, like uh, George uh, Spiteri, also called modern Assyria as Germany. But without giving a lot of details, why? Now, I want to read something from Pliny the Elder. I mentioned him before a couple of times. It says, uh, A Saracenite begins once to see he was surrounded and feel itself, which I am now lie, then huge hills, and thirty of them are the people of the Midland. Orgosini, six towns, Karasini, Assirani. And uh, so he, he referred to them uh, there. It's, a, he, it's basically what he's got. He supports the idea that these, the Assyrians ended up in Middle Europe. Now there's an old legend that the city of Tyre in Germany was founded by an Assyrian leader. It says, for the legend... Going history better by more than 2,000 years ascribes the founding of Trier to the Syrian prince Trebeta, who gave his name in 2053 uh, BC. Now, that's not when all of the Assyrians went up there. They went up there later. Uh, but um, there seems like there were some who went, which perhaps was part of the motivation for the Assyrians down in Asia Minor to come up later is because uh, they had a, a legend or a story that uh, one of their princes went up there. So this is not a, this is not a new idea. Let's see if I want to go any more on this topic. 
Now, I think that's, that's enough on that, but to, to make a long story short, when you see Assyria in the Bible, particularly prophetically, it's referring to peoples in Middle Europe, predominantly the Germanic peoples there, for example, in uh, Germany uh, and in Austria, but perhaps some of the others uh, there as well. And there was also some interbreeding. And so we also uh, have this, including perhaps some of the Slavic peoples, uh, as well as some other Europeans. Okay, the next question. Concerning the location of Golgotha, now, they say the most likely site is a rock cliff just outside the north wall of Old City of Jerusalem. to the west of Herod's Gate, overlooking the Garden Tomb. This cliff is the highest point in the mountain ridge, which extends from the area of the city of David in the south. When Abraham was instructed to offer, offer up Isaac, he was told to go to the land of Moriah and offer him on one of the mountains there in Genesis 22, verse 2. The land of Moriah included the hills of Jerusalem. Solomon later built temple on Mount Moriah, according to Second Chronicles uh, 30, excuse me, 3, 1. And it's entirely possible, and even likely, this is the same mountain which Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. Golgotha was the highest point on that mountain ridge, therefore the most logical place for sacrifice. God permitting Christ to be sacrificed for the sins of the world was foreshadowed by Abraham's uh, sacrifice. Apparently, the two uh, events took place at the same location. But some of this is speculative, because we don't really know. Anyway, by the time of the Romans, a major highway between Jerusalem and Damascus existed near this area. Many people passed by the city daily in their travels to and from the city. Typically, the Romans crucified or killed or executed criminals in conspicuous places for others to see. Although many people believe that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built on the site where Jesus was killed, there's more reason to accept the hill above the garden tomb as a biblical Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we're not sure. Um, um, I've seen arguments both pro and con for both locations. Um, I'm not certain that we have to know it, but if we did know it, it uh, could have certain ramifications. Okay, question about the book of Jonah. Let's go to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. I should have marked this, but I didn't. When I'm going through the uh, questions and answers, uh, I usually don't uh, mark out all my scriptures because I basically take this from uh, the old records that were there. Okay, book of Jonah. And so the question has to do with uh, something that occurs here. And let's start probably in verse uh, 12. Prior to verse 12, you, you know this story. Jonah uh, was told to go preach the event. He didn't want to do it. He ran away, gets in a boat, goes to sleep. There's a big storm. People say, hey, wake up, pray to your God. And Jonah basically says, look, I'm the reason we've got this storm. So he tells them what to do about this, verse 12. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Now they didn't want to do this. You can see verse 13. The men rode hard to return to the land. So it's, you know, they didn't believe in uh, the God of the Bible, that they weren't horrible people. They weren't just saying, Okay, if you want to die, we're happy to throw you off. We don't know you anyway. You're just a paying passenger. We don't care. 
But they tried really hard, but they couldn't do it. Because the scene got worse. Verse 14, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, don't let us perish for this man's life. And don't charge us with this innocent man's blood. For you've done this as it's pleased you. So God, don't blame us for what we're about to do, because, you know, you caused all this. So verse 15, they picked up Jonah. They threw him in the sea. And the sea ceased from raging. So when Jonah hit the sea, it was, it was calm. Okay, so they knew that you know, it was because of Jonah. Then the men feared the Lord, or the Eternal, exceedingly. And they offered up sacrifice, and they took vows. Whether they kept them or not, we don't have that recorded, but we know that they did do this. Now, when Jonah had prepared, excuse me, now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God already had a plan. Now, Jonah thought he had a better plan. Jonah thought, hey, I don't want to do it God's way. I have a better plan. I'm going to go and do it my way. God said, no, no. I know what you're going to do. I'm going to prepare this fish, and it's going to uh, swallow you up. So Jonah's been swallowed. And then, verse 1 of chapter 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. So he's in there. So the question is, got to do with this. What's, what is this? It says the original Hebrew wording in Jonah 1.17 is accurately translated in the King James Version as a great fish. The Old Testament translation produced by the Jewish Publication Society also refers to this creature as a great fish. It's not a whale like some people said. Some controversy arises, however, when you have the King James Version translation of Matthew 12.40. This verse says that Jonah was in the whale's belly, but that was only an assumption on the part of the translators. The New King James Version correctly renders this phrase in the belly of a great fish. Smith's Bible Dictionary makes the following comments about the word whale. Probably the fish which swallowed Jonah was some type of a shark or fish especially provided. Evidence from Scripture supports this conclusion. Well, actually, it supports the conclusion it was a fish especially provided because that's what the Word of God says that we just read in the book of Jonah. So some kind of a large fish and not a whale that swallowed uh, 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 Jonah. And I'll also comment that I heard some reports from the 19th century where people said, ah, oh, this could not have happened, where actually some uh, either whalers or fishermen found a living human being in, I think, at least two either whales or fish uh, that they brought up. So yes, uh, Jonah could have survived the three days uh, that God had him in there, and the Word of God says that. Now, the last thing I want to cover is a question concerning the Jewish holiday known as Hanukkah. Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights, is observed in uh, honor of the rededication of the temple by Judas uh, Maccabeus in the 2nd century B.C. Uh, it's not in the Bible. It's in some books, however, that the uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox accept as scripture. But the Continuing Church of God, we don't accept. The Protestants didn't accept them. Jerome, the saint and doctor of the Roman Catholic Church, didn't want them to be accepted. Uh, and uh, so it's not from scripture. But anyway, it's an eight-day festival where candles are lit. Uh, and on one of the 
one on the first of the evening, two on the second, so forth, till eight are lit. Uh, Jesus was a Jew by birth. He was present at the festival dedication in John 10, verse 22. And so we can, we can uh, go there. John 10, verse 22. This is why, by the way, we do not prohibit the observance. One of the reasons why we don't observe, prohibit the observance of national holidays. Uh, pagan holidays, we say people cannot keep, but national holidays, you can. Because we see the example of Jesus, John 10, verse 22. Now it was a feast of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter, verse 23. And Jesus walked in the temple in the Solomon's porch. So uh, we see Jesus was there, uh, consistent with the practices of uh, the Jews at the time. Oh, okay. Let me read what the old Worldwide Church of God read about this. We learn from Christ's example that it's not wrong to acknowledge certain national holidays. As long as they're not derived from paganism, do not violate God's law. Thanksgiving, an American holiday, is one example. And I would tend to say a lot of the national holidays and some of the Independence Days that various countries have. It's not sinful to acknowledge them or whatever. And depending on how they're celebrated, to participate in them. However, getting back to Hanukkah, this is correct here. Modern Hanukkah observances are similar to Christmas celebrations. And a few years back, uh, Hanukkah fell uh, during the Christmas uh, time. It's always in December, so it's close to Christmas, and sometimes the, one of the most observed days was actually, I think, December 25th. And so a lot of Jews were uh, uh, keeping that. And while acknowledging a national holiday could be all right, um, they were a lot of Jews have imitated uh, Christmas and turned uh, their national holiday into essentially a, a, a pagan holiday. Uh, some also believe there's some prophetic ramifications of, of Hanukkah, uh, which we're, we're not going to go into. Um, I guess I will do one more. This has to do with vaccinations and immunizations. Uh, the church is a... Here's what the World Worldwide Church of God put. The church is a spiritual body, neither approves nor disapproves of uh, many medical procedures extant today. Well, there's some that we certainly don't approve. As far as uh, the idea of vaccinations, everyone needs to make up their own mind. Uh, our children were not vaccinated, but they also uh, live with me and my wife, and I've got a, a background in natural health, so if they got various diseases, we could treat them. Um, we don't incur, uh, uh, We do not tell people, though, you have to get every vaccination known to humankind or whatever. But I will comment that in order to do the work, for example, in uh, 2020, uh, well, we sent uh, three people to uh, uh, Kenya, Malawi, and Mozambique and uh, to help fulfill the gospel and to get information out to these places. In order to go there, uh, you have to have a yellow fever vaccination. So while we sympathize with those who are opposed to vac vaccines, and again, I don't care for vaccines and we didn't have our children vaccinated, uh, there sometimes can be a, a, a time for them. Uh, in 2020, now you've got the COVID vaccine, and it might be possible that you may not even be able to travel without getting something like that. So getting a vaccine when you have to do it because you're doing God's work isn't a lack of faith. On the other hand, Many diseases that vaccines are supposed to prevent could be eliminated if people 
uh, live a more healthy lifestyle, uh, were not overweight, uh, didn't commit various uh, acts of sexual immorality, etc. And so we don't think you should go out and get all the vaccines you should possibly get so you can sin. Uh, if you don't want to get a get vaccine and you're part of the Continuing Church of God, we have a letter you can show. But the church's official position is you need to make up your own mind. And yes, sometimes there are times uh, in modern societies that uh, vaccines are required to do the work of God. And perhaps in your own job, particularly if you are in the health field, you work in hospitals, uh, uh, they may require that as well. But in general, no, we don't like the idea of sticking ourselves with things that uh, contain poisons uh, or otherwise are not healthy for the human body. Well, anyway, uh, that's a bunch of the questions. Uh, and again, we'd like to uh, do these sermons answering a bunch of questions from time to time because a lot of people have questions. And then a sermon like this gives us an opportunity to try to address multiple subjects at the same time. So hopefully this has been helpful to you. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.